This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 27, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor Catherine Matisik is here with a story on talking drums used for long-distance communication in the Northwest Amazon. Marin Alexi joins us to talk about a new twist on solar cells. It turns out poking semiconductors with a tiny needle may give them an extra charge. And last up, we have our book segment. This month, Jen Goldbeck interviews author Lucy Cook about her book, The Truth About Animals, Stone Sloths, Lovelorn Hippos, and Other Tales from the Wild Side of Life. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an online news editor for science. She's here with a story on talking drums. Bum, 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 bum. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I really like that little message you sent my way, although I don't know what it means. I know. Right. Okay. One thing we got to get out right out front here is that we're talking about drumming as communication, you know, not as music, right? This is as talking over long distances. How common is this, you know, to send messages with drums. Right. And there are two things I sort of want to unpack here. Mm -hmm. And the first one is the notion of calling drums talking drums. Okay. Um, that's something that there are these very famous drums used by the Yoruba people in Nigeria that are called talking drums because the way they're made is they have these beautiful ropes that go around either side that you can adjust and you can actually change the tone of the drum. And because Yoruba is a tonal language, okay. you can sort of mimic spoken language using that drum. The drums that we're talking about today perform similar functions. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're actually called talking drums. But getting back to your earlier question about how widespread is this, mm -hmm. it's pretty widespread geographically. There are groups all across Western and a little bit of Central Africa, the Chin people of Burma, mm -hmm. and then as we're going to talk about today, a couple of different tribes in the Amazon near the border of Peru and Colombia. Why have drums taken up this role, you know, this long distance communication role? Part of that is because of the acoustic quality of drums. Mm -hmm. If I'm shouting to you from one village to another in the middle of a forest, I bet you're not going to hear me. Yeah. And by using these drums, because they have low pitch frequencies, which allow the sounds to travel up to 10 times the distance of somebody who is speaking or shouting. And they also have high amplitudes, which 
basically means they're really loud. Right. So less of the sound is lost on the way to its destination. Okay, so people are using drums to talk or communicate over long distances. And I'm kind of trying to hedge around the words talk and communicate because I know whenever we talk about language or <laughs> communication, there's a lot of very specific things that need to be said. So let's get into, is this talking? Is this communicating with drums? There are lots of ways we could use drums for communication. Right. You and I could agree in advance that three taps and a little thump at the end means I'm happy to see you. Good mm -hmm. morning. Or we could agree that we want to use some type of Morse code, right? Yeah. Where three dots and a dash... For you, it stands for a what letter? It stands for the way I often feel. Okay. <laughs> SOS. SOS. Very good. But it does, you're right. It's it stands for letters that are in the written language. Right. Okay. But what we're talking about today is a third, entirely different way to use drums to talk. Okay. And that is taking drums and using all of the properties that they have in terms of sound and using that to imitate a spoken language. So that if somebody really skilled is drumming, they are going to lay down beats that sound very similar mm -hmm. to the spoken language such that a listener would be able to hear that message and interpret it. Okay. And this is a study, too. We're not just giving people right. a Torah drum language. Let's talk about what was studied here. The drum languages in the Amazon have been noted since missionaries swept through, you know, in the 20th century but they haven't really been systematically studied. And so this is one of the very first systematic studies of this kind of drum language oh. in the Amazon. What aspects of this drumming are they focusing on? What's very interesting about most of these drummed forms of language is that they occur very frequently in tonal languages. So languages where you have high pitches and low pitches and sometimes pitches that swing all over the map. And those are used to distinguish meaning. So it's not just... Exactly. Because we, we talk in all kinds of pitches, but that meaning is assigned. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so in these tonal languages, oftentimes the drums that are being used to play messages... Mm -hmm will have different pitches. And so the drums that are used by the Bora, who are the people we're talking about, you know, it's a small tribe now numbering about 1,500. The drums, there are two of them. They're about two meters long a piece. They're made out of these hollowed out tree trunks and they have slits carved in the middle. There is a male drum, which is a little bit skinnier, mm -hmm. and there's a female drum, which is a little bit fatter. Okay. And so the female drum has a lower pitch to it, and the male drum has a higher pitch to it when you beat them with rubber mallets. And that's to give two different tones to what's happening. Yeah. So what, what's happening is because Bora is a two-tone language, they have high tones and low tones. Anytime that a drummer wants to match what's being said, they can match that part of the language by choosing which drum to hit at which times. And so researchers know that these tones are traveling the distances needed. Exactly. Okay. Now so that's an, number one. That's number one. Number two has to do with the, I'm going to say cadence, I'm going to say beat, I'm going to say meter, and you're going to tell me which one is right. There you go. Okay. And I will, I will try to <laughs> channel my inner linguist to get this proper. This is the really new part of this study. The researchers wanted to see whether there was something in the rhythm of the drumming 
that somehow matched either the rhythm of the speech or the type of speech Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form so that listeners would intuitively hear these rhythmic beats and say, ah. That sounds like that word. Sounds like that word. You know, we have a a sample. I'm going to play it here. Oh, great. All right. Go for it. First, the person's going to talk, and then the drum is going to play. Okay. To me, those sound somewhat similar. I mean, I don't know what they're saying, and I don't know what the drums yeah, are saying. Yeah, I think, I think what they're saying in that clip is uh, they're talking about this drinking competition. <laughs> okay. And, it's, and it's, not, it's not a drinking competition in the way we would think of it with alcoholic beverages, but there are these starch-based drinks that people will have competitions and basically consume until they get ill. Hmm. And whoever the victor is, these drums will announce the victor. Oh. They also announce the loser. Okay, great. Okay, so when the researchers listen to sequences like this, when they analyze them, what did they find out about using drums to communicate? So what they did was they performed a very rigorous analysis in terms of the timing of what I will call not the beat, because in music, I guess, you know, beat is sort of like meter. Mm -hmm. It's like a metronome that's going on in your head. But what they did was they listened for when the drum was hit in relation to the spoken words. So if you were saying them at the same time, say. Right. And what, what they found out is intuitively you might think that the drummer would strike the drum with each syllable. And there is some match between the syllable and the striking. But what happens is they strike the drum as soon as the first vowel Hmm. of the syllable is uttered in spoken speech. So here's, here's where they broke it down. They wanted to see if combinations of vowels and consonants, which is what we use to articulate our speech every day. Yeah. They wanted to see if somehow that was being channeled through this rhythm. Hmm. Because as you know, if you're drumming, there are no vowels, there are no consonants. So what they did was they took all of these little clusters. Uh, you would have vowels, you would have vowels followed by consonants, you would have vowels followed by vowels, and then you would have vowels followed by two consonants. Okay. So that's a lot there. But all I'm saying is that there are these four different types. What they found when they did their analysis is that the time from one drum strike to the next was 20 milliseconds longer with each of those groups. And 20 milliseconds doesn't sound like a lot, but it is enough that a human can process the difference. Between each group or are they adding up like more and more different. They're adding up more and more difference. Okay. Yeah. So what does it mean, Catherine? So what it means is that it is very likely, according to this study, that humans are capable of processing these infinitesimal differences in timing. We're turning it back to what our ears can do and our processing can do, not just what people with drums that need to talk to each other with drums can do. Right. Yeah. Okay. What the researchers propose, and, you know, there's going to be arguments about this, there's going to be further studies, but what they propose is that maybe this is a feature not just of drummed language, mm-hmm. but also of spoken language. Mm. There's, um, you know, a very famous problem that's called the cocktail party problem. Right. And if you're like me, when you're at a loud party... You don't know what to drink. That's one of the problems. <laughs> no, go ahead. The other problem, the other problem is... 
I don't know what you're saying to me across a loud and crowded room. And so I use all sorts of cues, right? And some of it may be lip reading and some of it may be, you know, deciding based on the context what it is that you're saying. But what these researchers are suggesting is that maybe certain sound combinations that we make where you've got the vowel followed by the consonant followed by the other consonant, maybe there are imperceptible differences Mm -hmm. in timing when we start saying each of these things that our brains are picking up on and we're using to interpret what other people are saying. Kind of like, you know, those those experiments where you leave a bunch of letters out or you spell a bunch of words kind of wrong and people can just gloss it and read what they're seeing. Like this is on the phone and all you can hear is the low tones. But yeah, you can probably get a bit of it, right? Yeah. And so the idea is that these very, very small delays in timing Mm -hmm. after specific types of sounds could be a clue that our brains are using to process the words of other people. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, more research is needed. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Catherine, can you tell us what else is on the site this week? We have a story on solar cells that could work indoors and another on how a gene linked to breastfeeding may have boosted the survival of Native American ancestors. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on how the Salk Institute has put a revered scientist on leave after harassment allegations, and another story on new EPA guidance that would define wood as a carbon-neutral fuel. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an online editor for the news site. You can read her story and all the other ones just mentioned at sciencemag.org slash news. Stay tuned for an interview on prodding more juice out of solar cells. Now we have Marin Alexi. He and his colleagues write about a new way to squeeze more juice from solar cells. Welcome, Marin. Thank you. So uh, I'm, I'm here to answer any question you want. Wonderful. This paper is about introducing a little bit of pressure, a tiny, tiny point of pressure onto a semiconductor in order to amp up the juice. Why is this happening? What are you changing about a solar cell or a semiconductor when you poke it with a very fine needle? That's a quite a good question. It needs a little bit of time to explain a little bit of the background. Yeah. Should we go back to the beginning of what exactly, what kind of solar cell we're talking about here? Exactly. So so when we are speaking about normal solar cells, so normal means commercial solar cell. Yeah. It means that we always have a junction in our material, which is a semiconductor. This junction is uh, between a part which is N-doped, so that means it has more electrons than their counterpart holds, and the other part is uh, the P-type, which has more holes than the electrons. And we can engineer that in such a way that within this very little volume of the whole material, which is this P-N junction, if the light it's absorbed is going to generate free charges. It's going to drive electrons around. Exactly. And only in this junction, only in this part, those P and N type of carriers will be split by internal field of the junction and generate a uh, current or a voltage across the solar cell. Okay, so something's happening at these junctions between these two types of materials such that electrons get moved around 
by sun coming in and they're captured as electricity. Exactly. So not exactly moved around. They are excited. They are generated from the existing electrons in the material. The general wisdom was no junction, no energy harvesting. Now, there is a, a very old, almost the same age as this, which is called bulk photovoltaic effect. Mm-hmm. And that is solely based on the structure of the material. If the material has a lack of inversion symmetry, so is non-central symmetric, that automatically shows this carrier generated by uh, photons uh, splitting in, in those carriers, okay? So you're not mixing two materials. You have one material and the characteristic, one of the characteristics of that material. Exactly. Now, we have this material which has these special properties in terms of symmetry of the crystalline symmetry. Okay. And this material, it's automatically a photovoltaic material. Now... We were working on this bulk photovoltaic effect, sometimes called abnormal photovoltaic effect. And we were thinking that how can we induce in a normal material, in the normal, in a material which shows from the crystalline point of view a center of the symmetry, this photovoltaic effect. The only thing we've got was putting the material under inhomogeneous strain. Okay, so poking it. That's that's one one way to do that. It's it's yeah. poking with a needle, let's say. Under the needle, it develops a volume in which the strain is inhomogeneous. So it's got kind of a directionality to it. There's a point that has more pressure. Or exactly, has, like it has more pressure, which fades out within the bulk of the material. So you're introducing asymmetry. Exactly. We know that strain does have a major impact on the electronic properties of, of semiconductors. For instance, computers are working with a, uh, the microprocessor, which is made out of strain silicon. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that is a kind of uniform straining of the silicon. It does impact only in the mobility of, the, of these free carriers. Now, our strain is, is, is non-homogeneous, and that means that every each unit cell, it loses its own symmetry or central symmetry. And that makes automatically this abnormal photovoltaic effect or, or bulk photovoltaic effect to kick in. Well, going back to this kind of fundamental principle, the idea that you can introduce this non-homogeneous strain and kind of turn something into a bulk photovoltaic system... Does this mean that you can use new materials for making solar cells? Does this mean you can improve efficiency of things that we're already using? So it means first that you can do a solar cell, you can harvest energy without a complicated uh, chemical processes creating a PN junction. So you can use one single material and just... You can use one single material, you strain it appropriately, you should squeeze some energy out of these incoming photons. Okay. That is at a fundamental level. Now, at the yeah. practical level, yeah. you would ask me, and I suppose you want to ask me that, mm-hmm. we don't know if we can add massively more energy or mo- more efficiency to the existing efficiency of PN junction. Right now, starting that type of research uh, to quantify our effect in terms of efficiency. But this does sound like it opens the door to experimenting with different formats because you 
have a new way of inducing this effect, this interaction with light to create energy. Absolutely. It, it was exactly what I want to say. It is a new effect. As I said, this effect is additive to the existing effect. You can have both a PN junction type of harvesting and uh, this type of, of harvesting based on the strain engineering. Nothing prevents to pile them up. Most probably what would prevent really to use would be the price or or would be uh, more practical things that the fundamental physics or the mm-hmm. fundamental uh, science, which is uh, for the moment uh, relatively simple. We haven't really talked about numbers in terms of how much more energy this might help harvest from the sun. Do you have any idea about that? We haven't compared to a PN junction because it's it's really difficult to compare directly to a PN junction. We have compared with another type of junction, which is a so-called metal semiconductor junction, mm-hmm. which in itself generates the same, you know, uh, carrier splitting uh, and has the same effects, uh, not at the same efficiency, as the, the normal PN junction, but nevertheless, pretty good. And we have noticed an enhancement of an order of magnitude of the signal if you poke this metal semiconductor junction. Okay, very cool. So it's a significant enhancement of the current. As I said in the very beginning, so we have to work with the real, you know, systems. Right. You don't want to be completely removed from the practical in order to kind of see where this is going to go. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So so we are working now exactly in quantifying. Okay. All right, Marin, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm very happy and I hope your listen will get the message that uh, from now on, strain might play a role. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. They should just start poking things. Okay, yes. (laughs) Marin Alexi is a professor at the University of Warwick in the Department of Physics. He and his colleagues wrote about flexophotovoltaics last week in Science. Stay tuned for our monthly book segment. Jen Goldbeck interviews Lucy Cook about the book The Truth About Animals, Stone Sloths, Lovelorn Hippos, and Other Tales from the Wild Side of Wildlife. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April book segment of the Science Podcast. This month, we're reading Lucy Cook's new book, The Truth About Animals, Stone Sloths, Lovelorn Hippos, and Other Tales from the Wild Side of Wildlife. The book looks at the ways we unfairly assign human attributes and values to animal behavior and, at the same time, how we have an arrogance about our place in the world, using animals for whatever purpose we like. I'm joined by the author, Lucy Cook. And Lucy, the book looks at a different animal in each chapter. One of those, chapter three, is the sloth, an animal that you're clearly quite fond of. You've written a bunch of books just about sloths in the past, and you're the founder of the Sloth Appreciation Society. Absolutely. I think that sloths are are one of the most misunderstood animals on the planet. And, you know, I've always you know, had a real affection for an underdog. Sloths are often perceived as lazy because they're so slow in the way that they move. But you point out that being fast isn't necessarily the end goal of evolution. Sloths have made moving slow an advantage. Why are they so slow? The reason why sloths are slow is because their diet is of a very poor quality um, and doesn't provide them with much nutrition. So they survive on about 160 calories a day, which is about the same as um, a packet of chips or something. And it would leave you or I feeling quite peckish if we were to be... uh, 
if we were to only survive on 160 calories a day. But the sloth does that. And so their slow movements are partly an energy-saving device, one of their many suite of energy-saving adaptations. But it's also an advantage in terms of not being seen. Now, if you think about it, monkeys, I don't know if you've ever been to the jungle, they, they crunch around in, in the branches and, and they make their presence very well known. They, they move fast and they make a lot of noise. Sloths are almost invisible when you go to the jungle. They're incredibly hard to see. Um, they, they've got this fantastic camouflage that they have algae in their fur and, and insects that make them literally become at one with their environment. But also their, moves, their movement um, is so slow that it's thought that it, it slips under the radar of, of harpy eagles, which are these terrifying birds of prey, as they swoop around the treetops. Um, they simply don't register the movement of the sloth, and so they avoid, they avoid predation in that way. So being slow is a virtue. One thing that bothers me that I think echoes a lot of your discussion about anthropomorphizing animals in the book is when I see people posting these cute videos online where they completely misunderstand what's going on with the animals in them. And one that I'm thinking of that's been going around is of this golden retriever and she has her puppy with her. And there's some dude who's like reaching in and trying to pat the puppy. And the mom is batting his hand away. She's standing over the puppy. And everybody thinks this is like an adorable game. The guy in the video thinks it must be a fun game. And I look at that as someone who really understands dog behavior. And the mom is angry and she's anxious. And the dude is about to get his face bit off, right? So I find it so upsetting when people think that there's this fun, cute thing going on where we're actually kind of terrorizing animals just because we're completely unable to read their facial expressions in a way that's different from what those would mean if they're put on a human. I think you're absolutely right. And, and at a large part of my book, is, is about how the, the, the perils of anthropomorphizing animals. You know, we have, uh, we humans have a compulsion for looking for our reflection in the animal kingdom. We want to read their expressions as something that we understand. But unfortunately, it just doesn't work because animals' faces don't have the musculature of ours and, 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 they, and they don't register emotions on, in their faces in the same way. And that can lead us to make some really bad inferences about how animals are responding to what we're doing with them. You know, I also get driven absolutely insane by um, some videos that have gone viral or photographs where people are like, oh, look at the smiling sloth. You know, in particular, um, the, the, the sort of fashion that there is now, which is uh, for people to take to have selfies um, with sloth. And, you know, they have these photos and they're like, look at the sloth, it's smiling and it's hugging on to me. And actually, what's actually going on in that, in that animal's mind, I can guarantee is nothing that approaches happiness. Sloths are solitary creatures in nature. They don't interact with each other apart from when they're very young as babies and then as adults in order to mate. So they don't enjoy being petted. In fact, they suffer very acutely from stress and the three-toed sloths are very sensitive to stress and will die very easily if they're petted. So these animals, you know, that are, that are posing alongside a, a, a human on Instagram in a selfie, you know, may look like they're smiling, but they're not. Even while we assign human emotions and values to animals, we humans also engage in using them often in really brutal and disturbing ways that serve our purposes. And that can also have really dire consequences, both for the animals and then these unintended consequences that follow. 
So as I was as I was researching the book, there were there were two mistakes that we we make repeatedly when it comes to animals, and one of them is is anthropomorphizing, and the other is anthropocentrism, which is placing ourselves in the centre of the animal universe and, and thinking that everything around us is there for a reason and for us to use as we see fit. So within the book, I, I detail a number of stories where we have used animals for a slightly unusual purpose and it has backfired wildly. From the 1940s to the 1960s, the world's first reliable pregnancy test was a small toad from, from southern Africa, the African clawed toad. And uh, a scientist who was discovering hormones in South Africa discovered that if you injected this toad with the urine of a woman and she was pregnant, the toad would lay eggs within 24 hours. And this incredibly became the standard pregnancy test. You know, family planning clinics in, in, in London, in the basement, they, they would be full of people, toads, toads, prognostic toads telling the future of, of couples as to whether they were going to have children or not. So once the sort of more reliable chemical tests were developed, these amphibians became obsolete and, and people thought they were being kind and, and released them into the wild because, you know, why not set them free after a lifetime of good service? Unfortunately, what we didn't know about Xenopus, the African clawed toad, is that it carries a fungus on its back that has subsequently spread to amphibians all over the globe and is, is now call, causing a catastrophic, catastrophic uh, levels of, of extinction amongst numerous wild species. So, you know, I, I think that sort of, we, you know, we are arrogant. We see nature as there for our disposal, something for us to use and make use of. Well, Lucy Cook, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The Truth About Animals, and in it, you will find chapters on eels, hippos, bats, pandas, and more, many of them with stories far too saucy for this podcast. And that's it for this month. We'd love your feedback on the Science Magazine Books blog, Books et al., and we'll be back next month with another book for your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.